Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, the crusade against diversity, equity, and inclusion, or DEI, may not have gained traction in California, but it's a California-based think tank, the Claremont Institute, that's at the center of an effort to dismantle DEI programs on college campuses elsewhere. And it's gaining steam. Legislation to ban or limit DEI in higher education has been introduced in more than 20 states in the last couple of years, with several approving them. New York Times investigative reporter Nicholas Confessori gained access to thousands of documents and emails, shedding light on, quote, the playbook and the thinking behind the Claremont Institute's national anti-DEI campaign. We'll hear what he learned after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Across the country, in the wake of the murder of George Floyd, social justice and racial diversity initiatives were carried out at universities and workplaces. DEI programs sought to do things like cast a wider recruitment net for staff and students, improve fairness and promotion, or create environments that felt less biased or discriminatory. And these efforts have drawn the ire of many on the right— perhaps none more so than the Claremont Institute, a California-based think tank that has called DEI a mortal threat to the American way of life. Their anti-DEI message has effectively suffused the right, as New York Times' Nick Confessori writes, quote, in 2023, more than 20 states considered or approved new laws taking aim at DEI, even as polling has shown that diversity initiatives remain popular. Joining me now is Nick Confessori. Welcome to Forum, Nick. Hey, it's great to be here. Thank you. So first, can you just remind us what the Claremont Institute is? Uh, it's a great question. It's a relatively uh, small think tank uh, based outside Los Angeles um, with close ties in recent years um, uh, to the Trump movement uh, and to certain governors like Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida. Um, and it was really an outsider kind of conservative think tank. It was outside the conservative establishment uh, for a long time and still thinks of itself as sort of in opposition to what scholars there call conservative ink. Um, and they consider the establishment of the conservative movement to be uh, too timid in the face of what they view as uh, important and urgent challenges to American civilization. Hmm. Some of our listeners might associate the Claremont Institute with one of its leaders, lawyer John Eastman, who worked with Trump to overturn the 2020 election. Is Eastman still there? 
Um, I'm not sure if he's still a fellow. I suspect he still has some involvement there. Uh, uh, and he's still in good standing, although, as you may know, as your listeners may know, his involvement um, in uh, the effort to overturn the election uh, you know, did cause some dissent within the Claremont world. Not everybody agreed with his legal theories. So you say that the Claremont Institute started wielding quite a bit of influence, especially during the Trump presidency and has close ties to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. But you write about how in the wake of the George Floyd protests and after Trump's election defeat that the leaders were on the defensive. Can you talk a little bit about what was happening in the country that was making them feel that way? Well, uh, as you remember, the, the George Floyd protests, the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, protests over racial injustice all across the country, um, and and the backlash to that, uh, claims that it went too far, that uh, there was too much um, activism or too much protesting. Um, there was a lot of energy at that moment around these issues. And in the Claremont world, they felt like they were losing. They saw the protests. They saw, you know, I think you saw polling in the moment in the first part of summer 2020, uh, where there was a lot of uh, public support for the idea of some kind of reckoning. People were much more open to it than maybe they are sometime later. Uh, and so they thought about how do we fight this? How do we go against this movement that we see as imposing a kind of a racialism on American politics that we think goes against the founding principles? And so they started talking about it. Can you explain what that means? Like, why... Trying to increase racial diversity, for example, is so threatening to the Claremont Institute. Well, I think that they have an argument that is not just their argument, but I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the broader perspective. I think on the one hand, there is an argument that um, uh, the bureaucracies and administrative programs that universities set up over the last decades uh, to create inclusion and opportunities for students <clears throat> have also had the knock-on effect of creating intellectual narrowness, of making it hard for people with more conservative or middle-of-the-road views uh, to state what they think. They've, uh, In this argument, they've created a, a climate of fear on campuses for people who might go against prevailing ideas about identity or race or gender. That's one thing. Um, but I also believe that they are part of a corner of the conservative movement that is getting more powerful and important that thinks that the country and its legal apparatus around anti-discrimination in general has been off the, on the wrong track for decades. Um, and affirmative action is a part of that. But I think that they are part of uh, the corner of the conservative movement, which is a big one now, I think, that sees racial preferences of any kind uh, as a terrible departure uh, from ideals of colorblindedness. And and they want to turn back the clock and unwind those programs. I should note that we invited the Claremont Institute to respond to your reporting, but they did not reply to us. They have, though, published a written response, and I'm going to read a little bit from it. It says, today, nearly every facet of our society worships the false and pernicious view that diversity is somehow our greatest strength. And they write, indeed, we've been around long enough to see today's diversity fanaticism as but the latest effort to undermine Republican self-government and our free society. Tyranny comes in many forms. Tyranny is such an interesting choice of words. What is tyrannical about 
DEI? Well, I, th- I think in their view, uh, some of these programs and some, well, I should say, um, they're, as a factual matter, uh, some of these programs at some schools in some instances, um, you, know, you know, can feel coercive to students or faculty. Um, you think of uh, a conservative presser, a professor or a judge who wants to give a speech to a bunch of students who want to hear it. Um, and there is a, a heckler's veto protest where they shut down the, 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 the speech. Um, it, it, and, and I think they see those kinds of protests and heckler vetoes as rooted in ideas that come out of the DEI apparatus at colleges, which state that if something makes, if, if, if an idea or argument makes you uncomfortable or you don't like it or it makes you feel unsafe, that you have a right to stop it from being voiced or from happening. I think that's that's one. Um, uh, you know, I think, you know, Claremont can speak to its own deeper ideas about American society, but I think, you know, broadly that that they think that these programs create a coercive atmosphere on campus. But beyond that, and this is important, um, I think that they believe they're, that they're a part of a movement uh, in the country that believes that higher education and K-12 education should serve a different set of political goals. I would call them traditionalist goals, uh, culturally traditionalist. They think that schools should teach a reverence for America, a reverence for the founders, a reverence for the Constitution. They're very impatient uh, with schools of academic thought, which are pretty left-inflected, that are more critical of American institutions. They think that uh, colleges should serve a social purpose of educating students in a certain way. And I think that's really interesting because in the middle, there's a different argument, which is that, you know, colleges and universities should strive as institutions to be viewpoint neutral, that the administration itself, the school itself, takes no position on issues. People at the school will take positions. But I think the Claremont perspective, which is not just their perspective, I think Chris Rufo has his perspective. He's a big uh, anti, uh, um, kind of anti-anti-racism activist on the right. Um, I think their perspective is rather than have these schools serve what they view as left-wing ideological um, causes, the schools should serve traditional conservative and American ideas about government and constitution and society that we should teach those instead. So they, I, I think they want to replace what they view as a bad orthodoxy with what some would call a different kind of orthodoxy. Well, to be honest, that sounds a lot like the things that they were willing to say publicly, but it sounds like you also found you also found disturbing things in their private interactions, emails and comments that suggest that yes, that may be the argument that they're making and yes, they probably do feel that way but it might be driven by something more pernicious. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that they would say in their conversations, things that were racist or sexist or homophobic that that you can tell us without directly quoting from, <laughs> honestly? Well, uh, so just to back up on the reporting that went behind this story, I obtained thousands of emails Uh, including internal correspondence among people and fellows uh, at Claremont who were involved in this project and correspondence with both 
allies outside the Institute that were involved explicitly in the project and and fellow travelers, friends and like-minded conservatives around the country who shared their views on these topics and with whom they often corresponded on them. Um, And in those emails, which were often more casual, I think they were much more unvarnished in their views, a term I, mean, I, I use in my story, somewhat advisedly. Um, uh, for example, uh, you know, Scott Yenor is a professor at Boise State University. I think he's um, on leave to, for, uh, um, for his work at Claremont. He runs uh, essentially their, their state projects. Um, and uh, he believes that homosexuality is bad for the country, is bad for civilization. There are emails in which... He talks about his views that homosexuality belongs back in the closet or that, quote, a healthy society requires patriarchy. Um, You know, he writes in one email about how how, uh, some countries, instead of having same-sex marriage, have, quote, more wholesome policies like like, like a prison for gay people. Um, That's one example or or a set of examples. Uh, There was a lot of bias and animus towards gay people in these emails, um, especially gay men. Uh, there were attacks on Peter Thiel from people in these conversations. Peter Thiel is a, um, a big conservative donor, often considered kind of libertarian, has some affiliation with the Trump movement, with what's called the National Conservatism Movement, which grew out of Trumpism. Um, and they, um, you know, attack the notion that he has a marriage because he's married. Um, and they talk about how gay men are more likely to be, be, be a more promiscuous because they have testosterone but no female modesty. Uh, so these are the unvarnished true views they have about sexuality, for example. Yeah. Uh, there's another example in the story where Heather McDonald, who is a, a fellow at a different think tank called the Manhattan Institute. Uh, Ms. McDonald was not uh, directly organized in the Claremont Project, but she kind of has a parallel um, uh, set of work. Um, and she talked about, oh, and she's the author of a book called When Race Trumps Merit, How the Pursuit of Equity Sacrifices Excellence, Destroys Beauty, and Threatens Lives. In one email, she's talking about how she's walking around her Manhattan neighborhood, um, and she saw uh, nannies of color, as she describes them, escorting kids back to their homes after school. And her thought bubble, she says, was that it was so terrible that the mothers of those children had decided to try to make partner at law firms and and outsource the raising of their children to people from low IQ third world countries. Her term, not mine. We'll have more with Nick Compasari after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about a recent investigation by the New York Times called America is Under Attack Inside the Anti-DEI Crusade, written by Nicholas Compassori, a political and investigative reporter at the New York Times. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What are your questions for Nick about his investigation into the anti-DEI crusade and into the California think tank at the center of it, the conservative think tank called the Claremont Institute? Do you think the anti-DEI messages are gaining traction? Have you seen evidence of this? And does it worry you? Or or maybe it doesn't. What do you think is driving the anti-woke DEI backlash? You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. So you just gave a few examples of you know, the views of some of the key leaders of the Claremont Institute. And so when I sort of reread some of their language in their defense of their organization after your piece, it felt like their opposition was less about the DEI programs themselves and more in opposition to essentially the spirit of DEI, which is you know, valuing multiculturalism and and working towards a more racially and gender inclusive workplace. But in their case, it's democracy because they keep bringing up, you know, the American way of life and and American democracy frequently in their critique of DEI. And I'm wondering if you think that is true, that it's, it's not so much that the DEI programs themselves are problematic, Well, let's turn to the kind of bigger picture for this group. Um, They view education as the most important um, battleground in the culture war. Hmm. And they view uh, the kind of education establishment, uh, teachers, professional teachers, professors, accreditors, teachers' colleges, as uh, essentially creating an indoctrination machine for the left that... American education, including higher education, creates liberals. Um, and in their view, that undermines uh, the conditions you need for Republican government in, in, in this country. And so that is their kind of underlying concern. But I think you're right to wonder what's the specific objections. And certainly they have objections and they put out a bunch of reports about DEI programs. Um, but in their minds... Uh, I think they are trying to convince people that the common understanding of these terms, diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, are not how they are practiced in higher education, in DEI bureaucracies, on campuses. And so I think what's interesting, though, is if you look at their emails, they really wrestle with what to call what I'll say is this stuff. <laughs> and I'm going to say this stuff, which sounds absurd and... and um, um, not rigorous, because in these emails, even they are saying, what do we call this thing that we don't like? <laughs> um, they kind of struggle, uh, you know, first, and, and, and they struggle not only uh, with it as a matter of uh, thinking about kind of what it is, but also how to attack it. So there's an email where the chairman of the Claremont Institute, whose, whose name is Thomas Klingenstein, is a New York investor and a big donor on the Republican side. He says, rhetorically, our side is getting absolutely murdered. We have not even come up with an agreed-on name for the enemy. 
And Dr. Yanor, who was the head of this project eventually, says that, you know, the problem is a lot of lawmakers and a lot of state legislatures who are our target audience for our project are reluctant to attack anything called diversity and inclusion. We have to find a way to saddle it with more negative connotations. He wants to call it social justice. Um, uh, At the time, as you recall, this is back in 2021 when this effort got started, Chris Rufo of the Manhattan Institute was popularizing a different catch-all term, critical race theory. Um, And he turned that, I think successfully, in politics into a bucket into which people could pour anything they didn't like about, uh, you know, race ideas or politics or culture or questions about, you know, inclusion or identity. You could call it all CRT. (laughs) And so by 2022, we see Claremont changing its rhetoric and kind of cribbing from Chris Rufo. They start to call it critical social justice or critical social justice education. Um, uh, And in their minds, this kind of education permeates higher education. But then they realized, wait, we can come up with a better, a, a, a more discreet target. Let's call it diversity, equity, and inclusion. That's what we're up against. And yeah. so when the reports start coming out, they're doing a series of reports, remember, on different um, high-profile state universities, mostly in red states where the state lawmakers can be persuaded to kind of crack down. Um, and they basically Google all the DEI programs at the college, put it in a report, and say, this is what DEI really is. It's bad. You should get rid of it. And then they lobby with local groups in different states to try to pass bans on DEI. So it's it's a long answer to your question, right? You know, but but basically, this is part branding and part you know part politics and part substance. They're trying to figure out how do we get people to turn against these bigger ideas that have emanated from the left about identity and how to think about yourself and think about your role in, in, in a democracy. How do we turn people against that? Let's go after DEI programs. Yeah. I, I appreciate your long answer because I think it just gets at a lot of the things that we're trying to discuss here. This listener tweets, are these the same people who are banning books? Those are more the CRT people, as you say, but they're cribbing off of that a little bit. But one of the things that was so striking was Mr. Klingenstein, the person that you just talked about is playing a leadership role at the Claremont Institute, also said, hey, we're not interested um, in just reading the school's of CRT, he wanted to take the message further. He was saying, we want our politics to replace education. We, because all education is political, they just don't want CRT out of education. They want a specific ideology, their ideology to replace uh, education. So, So that was striking to me. And then the other thing that was striking to me was the fact that, you know, as you talked about, they made arguments like we need to protect diversity of thought and intellectual freedom and that they were for meritocratic ideals and that DEI programs, they would exploit moments when DEI programs, when black or Hispanic students or Asian students would say that they felt less welcome instead of more in those types of programs. But in reality, you know, it was, it was, in private, they were saying, yeah, we don't really care about that. And we don't even really want to Talk about free speech. We want our speech. <laughs> I think that's right. I mean, you know, one example here, um, this last year in 2023, uh, Scott Yanor uh, and some and some friends and colleagues in this movement were talking about how to defend Amy Wax, who is a very controversial professor at the University of Pennsylvania, um, who is essentially you know, facing an administrative proceeding at UPenn for, for comments she has made about race and black people. And, and 
so in this private conversation between uh, Yenor and a friend at Hillsdale College named David Azarad, they talk about how, well, you should, if you're preparing a statement for her lawyer to use in this, in this proceeding, you should say, you know, if you punish Amy Wax, then pretty soon uh, conservative states will start to punish um, uh, left-wing professors in retaliation. And Azarad asks, but don't we want this to happen? And Yenor says, yes, but your audience doesn't want it to happen. Hmm. And I thought that was uh, that was kind of revealing um, that they understand clearly that the American civic ideal of free speech, everyone gets to say their piece, which is a very powerful idea still in American culture, is valuable to them, that they know that people will be sympathetic to the idea, um, but also that you can persuade uh, liberal administrators at a more liberal college to go easy on someone like like Amy Wax because you can you can hold over the idea that they're going to start going after liberals in red states but of course that's what they want to do eventually and that's their goal i think that they would argue that they simply view academic freedom not as a high ideal in and of itself but as a means to an end and the end is a patriotic society in their view and so if you have to choose between those goals free speech is subordinated and so um, in their mind, it's not, a, it's not a bad thing if they have to fire a bunch of anthropology professors who have radical politics, if that gets us closer to a university in which people can learn the proper ideas about the Constitution and Republican government and the founding. Uh, so they, they see no, no problem with this. Um, and I do think, you know, it's interesting because in my, in my view as a reporter, um, their ideas are, are sort of a mirror image of some ideas on the left of the academy, that some things are more important than intellectual freedom. Uh, and I think there's a, there's a broader middle, even in the academy, that says, you know, it actually intellectual freedom is the heart of a university. Well, we're talking with Nicholas Confessori, and his piece is called America's Under Attack Inside the Anti-DEI Crusade, America's Under Attack is in quotes about the organization, the Claremont Institute. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation. Martina on Discord writes, reading the confessory piece is so sad and infuriating. Just the pure malevolence against anyone different and the idea that things could be better for everyone. They have so much power and all they want is more. And just to give you a little sense of what Amy Wax was opining on, she was essentially saying that the U.S. would be better off with fewer Asians, less Asian immigration, and that black people should have less power because they're just resentful and envious. So uh, let me go to Chris in Santa Clara, who is on the line. Chris, you're on. Great. Thanks. Thanks very much. You know, I think in many ways we can't get to the core of why there's so much upset about CRT and DAI unless you really understand the Dred Scott v. Sanford case from 1857. That may seem like it's kind of stretching back, but that case, specifically by a 7-2 to vote of the Supreme Court, stated that the intent of the founders was to never allow people of African descent to ever be national citizens. That even if a state was a free state, and if you could be a citizen of that state, the Supreme Court said black people could never, ever be U.S. citizens. So that case was never overturned. The 13th and 14th Amendment were adopted, which then eradicated slavery, and then said if you're born within the, the boundaries of the United States, then you're a citizen. But the, the core ruling saying about what the intent of the founders said, that's still good law today. 
That doesn't mean that it's applicable. I'm not in favor of, of what the, the conditions were then. But right. for us to try to pretend that the Constitution was not intended to specifically state that blacks are not human beings. The, the case says they are not entitled to freedom of assembly. They are not entitled to free speech. They are not entitled to any of the, the, the rest of the benefits that citizens of the United States have. So as our country has matured, you've got the Claremont Institute now truly believing that what the founders intended at the time should be re-implemented now. And we can't address this unless we at least embrace just from an, you know, both academically and also calmly and say, okay, that is what the founders intended. We've matured. We've changed now. We're going to try to steer the country in a different way. But for us to pretend that the founders and the Constitution did not intend that African-Americans are not human beings, that's not just not reading the Constitution. So, Chris, um, well, let me get Nicholas's reaction to what you're saying. There are strands of what Chris is saying that I have heard before, which is that what underlies a lot of this view is that the only democracy sort of worth defending is one that the Constitution originally deemed deserving of, you know, participating and voting, right, remain those who only get to do that today. Um, but anyway, you're... Your reaction, Nicholas, to Chris's point? Well, I think Chris gets at something that's actually really relevant in the Claremont uh, case particularly. Um, you know, one thing that Claremont really stands for is a total reverence of the founding and an idea that at the founding of America, this country was uh, a perfect synthesis of the best of Western civilization uh, and that it was perfect. And, of course, what, what Chris raised... <laughs> which is to say slavery, is, is sort of the fly in the ointment for their ideology. Because once you say, well, it actually wasn't, wasn't perfect, was it? <laughs> then you kind of open the door to discuss, well, well, so what else wasn't perfect? Maybe this is not a static thing that can never be changed. Maybe um, our understanding of the Constitution or how the country should work can evolve. And I think that is sort of an intellectual threat to the worldview there. And... Um, uh, if you if you sort of talk to other historians and legal experts and people who have some familiarity some familiarity uh, with that school of thought on the right, it's it's a really interesting debate, and they really want to be able to defend the founding as sort of pristine and to explain away slavery as a stain that was sort of you know kind of relatively quickly overcome uh, and need not disturb um, a reverence for the founders, because uh, that kind of undermines the whole project, right? Um, and look, this is like the oldest debate in the book in some ways. Um, who gets to be part of the country? Um, and what 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 is America? What does it really mean to be American? Um, and so I think these are, these are fundamental tensions. And um, I don't even mean to talk about education and politics as a new issue. It is, it is also one of the oldest debates in America, which is how to have public education uh, that is not partisan. And that was a concern of the founders. They thought about it a lot and talked about it a lot. And it's obvious that we never really solved the problem because um, I think one thing that you have to acknowledge uh, that, that the people on the right are, are not totally wrong about here is it's hard to make education totally non-political because these are all political choices, what you teach, 
how you teach it, who gets to teach, what the standards are. Those are, in some sense, policy questions and, and, and uh, political discussions that we have as a country, but more accurately as local communities. We've kind of long ago devolved control of schools to localities and, and states. So these are the oldest debates in America in some ways. We're talking about how an anti-DEI crusade is gaining traction, not in California, but in many ways, thanks to a California-based conservative think tank, the Claremont Institute, with Nicholas Confessori, who's written about them and obtained thousands of documents and emails among members of the Institute, showing their thinking and playbook. And, and so, Nick, we're coming up on a break, but just start by telling us how they go about their work, right? You talked about how they formed a loose network of think tanks, political groups, and Republican operatives in at least a dozen states. How did they do that, and why are they so well-resourced? Well, you know, it's an interesting question. Uh, I don't think it took a huge amount of money to do this. Um, and I think that they were riding a wind in some, to, uh, um, in some degree. They, they, had, they had the wind at their backs. Uh, there was already a political backlash in play um, against um, this complex of ideas and policies. And, and they looked for a way to brand it and steer it. And what they did was say, look, let's find... Um, local think tanks and partners in different states. Let's pick a university that's high profile in that state that we can get their attention. That's uh, a school that's important in some way. Let's catalog everybody who has DEI in their title. Um, let's put it all in a report and let's hand that report to state lawmakers and say, this stuff is really bad. You should get rid of it. And they've worked on that in um, you know, at least a dozen states that I've found. Um, and they were they were influential, I think, in passing two of the strictest bans on DEI programs in Texas and Florida, where there's really just a flat ban. You say, uh, we will ban these kinds of offices and programs. Uh, and that's what they did. It, 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 in some ways, it was a big effort, and in some ways, it didn't take much. Uh, they had a network. They, they reached out. They found local partners. Um, in Texas, it was a group called the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Um, in uh, Tennessee, it was a group called Velocity Convergence, which is founded by a longtime Republican political operative. Um, they worked uh, with a group called the American Principles Project, which is also kind of a political action group that does ads in different states. So they built something pretty remarkable, uh, and they had a real impact. We're talking with Nicholas Confessorian with you, our listeners. What are your questions about his investigation into the Claremont Institute, their efforts, their playbook? Do you think the anti-DEI messages are gaining traction? And does that worry you or does it not? What are your feelings about DEI? What are your thoughts about what might be driving this anti-woke DEI backlash? 866-733-6786, the number. Email address forum at kqed.org. Find us on our social channels at KQED Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about a recent investigation by the New York Times called America is Under Attack Inside the Anti-DEI Crusade. We're talking about the Claremont Institute, a conservative California-based think tank, and this crusade, its initiatives at universities to try to get them to get rid of their DEI programs. The New York Times obtained thousands of documents and emails among members of the Institute that showed its thinking and its playbook. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your questions for Nick about the investigation. Bianca from Penn Grove, join us. Hi, Bianca. Hi there. Thank you so much for taking my call. Um, so first, I'm I'm totally of the opinion that DEI initiatives are an incredibly reasonable ask when those initiatives are um, part of the organization's mission, um, including at universities. But I'm curious if the uh, guest would speak a little bit more towards the conversations that are actually happening on the left. Um, about mandated DEI um, or quote-unquote loyalty oaths (laughs) that happen um, at universities. I know there was a recent Open to Debate podcast that actually had um, Robert uh, Kennedy, who is the, um, uh, Randall Kennedy, excuse me, professor at Harvard Law, who was actually arguing that these kinds of mandated DEI university initiatives at universities um, perhaps present troubles for academic freedom, um, Mm. especially when they're linked to merit for professors. So I was just hoping that the guest could share a little bit more about those conversations on the left. Thanks, Bianca. Nicholas, do you know? I'd be be happy to. Uh, I think it's a great question. So what uh, Bianca gave right here is uh, probably the most important example of a DEI policy that is producing a real opposition on the left um, among liberal academics. Um, And for listeners who don't know, um, a DEI statement or a diversity statement really is essentially something that you have to submit uh, at a lot of institutions now, a lot of departments, as part of your job application if you want a job um, as a professor somewhere. And the, um, the statements often require you to spell out how are you going to advance uh, DEI according to our values at this particular institution in your classroom, in your teaching, out of the classroom, out, you know, in, your, in, your, in your life as an academic. Um, and then what's really interesting is that there are grading systems called rubrics <laughs> uh, for these statements. And one is called the Berkeley rubric, and it was formulated uh, in California. Um, uh, and so uh, what, what the rubric says is um, if, if a professor says, I will treat all my students the same, that's considered a bad answer in this grading system uh, uh, because that is an equity, and equity is a, a version of this idea uh, that says that actually different people need different amounts of help or different interventions. You can't just treat everyone the same because that perpetuates inequality. Um, and I think that's that's a a very common idea in academia, but it is not one I think has been like really tested in the public square very much. And I'm not sure um, if what what the level of support for that around the country would be if you had a big public discussion about it. It tends to be a kind of a closed discussion within education circles. And the the problem with that with that system is 
you not only have to say, like, I won't be a racist, right, which is, you know, seems like a, a basic qualification to teach at a public university, you have to commit yourself in some of these uh, diversity statement rubrics to a particular set of ideas about how to advance racial equality, right, or racial justice, that you have to commit yourself to a, a whole panoply of ideas and policies that you might not agree with not because you oppose racial justice, but because maybe you think those policies aren't the best way to achieve racial justice. And so I've actually heard a lot of criticism from academics who are self-described liberals who say, you know what, uh, these diversity statements are not a good addition to faculty hiring, um, especially when it's considered a more important part of your job application than your actual academic work, your studies, your papers, your your um, your, your tests and your experiments, right? Uh, so that's an example of um, where DEI efforts in universities have gone that has produced uh, criticism and blowback, not just on the Trump right, but on the center left. And I think those are important discussions that are happening more and more uh, in the last year or two in universities in higher education. Yeah. Well, Sarah writes, I'm distraught that the right wing has co-opted and maligned DEI AJ, diversity, equity, inclusion, accessibility, and justice programs. I know professors in certain states who are truly worried about speaking in class about critical race theory for fear of retaliation. I was in higher education, and now I genuinely worry that the Claremont Institute is ruining the critical discussions and the true academic freedoms that students from around the world come here to experience. So, yes, I think you're right. There are reasonable and important conversations to be had around this. But why was it so important for you to do this piece exposing this strand of it? What are you hoping people will think about when they engage in those debates? Oh, you know, it's a good question. Um, I don't often think about my reporting as as having a purpose beyond the story itself. Um, I think that uh, I was exploring these topics. I was doing reporting. I was um, filing records requests for documents because I was curious. I wanted to know um, what... Uh, you know, how did this effort come together? In, in some ways, the story I wrote is the story that answers the questions that I had when I started reporting this, which was, how did this come together? Where are these um, bands coming from? Uh, who is advocating for them and why? Uh, what uh, a movement have they put together? What does it look like? Um, and, and if I can get behind the curtain a bit and understand uh, what their aims are, what they say to themselves privately about what their aims are, that's useful for informing a public discussion. I, I do think it's important to to note, and I'm responding here partly to my own readers, some of the commenters to my story who are wonderful, and there are many of them, um, to say that uh, I don't think that, that uh, just because this one group of anti-DEI activists has a particular set of views about DEI, that everybody who has qualms or questions about the programs they see in practice in their own institutions or their own school districts um, are part of the same movement, or that it's all the same. I think part of what's challenging about this topic, including for me as a reporter, is when you say DEI policies, you can mean any number of things. It's yes. an extraordinarily wide range of policies, practices, ideas. They are all put into place in slightly different ways in different places. Um, there are a million diversity consultants working for all kinds of schools and school districts. Um, there are people with contrasting and opposing ideas, even on kind of the left part of the spectrum, um, 
you know, there are people who think that DEI isn't political enough. You know, that's basically human resources. It's it's protective for institutions, and it should be more revolutionary, which, again, sort of echoes the view of their of their uh, criticisms, or it's a mirror image of it, of, of their critics on the right. So I think this is a fruitful debate, and I think that when you look at the polling that says uh, people in general kind of like the idea of diversity or don't oppose DEI programs, I think that reflects partly uh, the discussion we haven't had yet about what these programs actually do. How do they work? Um, and, you know, maybe is there a gap between the common civic sort of creed of diversity that we have in America uh, and some of the actual programs to advance it that a lot of schools have come up with? And I think part of my reporting is to figure out, okay, is there a gap between those two things and what does it look like? Yeah, I guess part of what I got from your reporting that I was struck by was that this wasn't just a strand, but actually like a nerve center for the anti-DEI effort on the right in terms of its networking and so on. So that was that. And then the second point about the broadness of DEI, if you just say we're anti-DEI, is almost in part the point for the Claremont Institute because they were so interested in going beyond, say, even what CRT was attacking. I I think it's evident from both what they write publicly, scholars at the Claremont Institute, and what they say privately, that they have a set of objections um, to what they term DEI that goes way beyond, you know, a professor who's who gets in trouble with students for criticizing affirmative action. Um, they really have a problem with the entire edifice of anti-discrimination law and procedure that has arisen in the decades since the Civil Rights Act. Um, that's a much bigger project. Uh, and I think we are seeing evidence that rolling the clock back on that edifice of laws and practices is in, uh, is a new and rising cause on kind of the Trump right. You think of people like uh, Stephen Miller, uh, the former Trump aide who now runs the American First Policy Institute, you think of other legal advocacy and lawsuits. Um, there is a lot happening in this space, so it's not just about DEI. And I think you're right, and I think that my story and reporting shows that to some extent DEI is a brand and a cudgel. And while it, in this context, it sometimes does explicitly refer to DEI programs at the University of Texas or the University uh, of, of Tennessee, it is also a broader brand for, you know, stuff I don't like, things I'm impatient with about racial justice, or I'm tired of hearing about this, or um, I think people focus too much on identity. I think there are all kinds of more casual and instinctive objections and impatiences uh, with some of the ideas, and they all get kind of blended together. And it's it's one of the challenges of of writing about this and reporting about it, that you have to figure out exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Well, you had written that the documents that you looked at also chart the Claremont Institute struggle to gain traction with broader swaths of voters and officials. Is that past or present tense? Are they still struggling to do that? Or was that's that a great question? Yeah. So 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 almost all of the documents in my story come from before the October seventh attacks. Um and um I think that the convulsions we've seen on many college campuses around uh, uh, the attacks um, around Gaza have changed the debate. It's just not clear to me how much yet. I think it's going to take some time for us to see uh, how it plays out. I do think that 
um, these these protests, counter protests between um, pro Palestine and pro Israel students and faculty, all these discussions and arguments, some of them, you know, very intense, very hot, um, have possibly created more of a constituency on the center left of people who were like, maybe there is something not quite right in higher education, and maybe I have to look more closely at this. Um, but I don't, I don't know that. It's, it's a little bit of speculation. It's mostly, I would say it's anecdotal. I can point you to examples of that, but there has not been fresh polling on this, I think, uh, since last year. And, and it certainly sounds like it's something that folks like the Claremont Institute or those who are involved with them are looking at very closely as something to potentially exploit. The the point then that you are making about diversity programs remaining popular, it sounds like, or that polling has consistently shown that, it sounds like that remains popular for now. <laughs> Let me remind listeners that this is a fundraising period for public radio stations, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to Irma and El Cerrito. Irma, you're on. Hi, it's pronounced Irma. Irma. Thanks for joining us, Irma. Go and ahead. I re- absolutely. I recently came across the term opportunity hoarding, and I think it's the perfect description of why there's so much opposition to DEI. For centuries, white men, especially those with any financial resources, hoarded 100% of opportunities. And civil rights laws created an open opportunity for women, for people of color, previously excluded folks to go to college. We took interest in the history of our country, and we began doing research, writing, I want to use as the example the story of the Alamo. I'm originally from Texas. There's a, a book called Forget About the Alamo. Well, the history of the Alamo as we know it is basically from the movies, but it's not a correct rendition mm-hmm. of why Texas and Mexico had a fight that ended up with, you know, the Battle of the Alamo. So as I hear the program, and I'm really eager about reading Nick's uh, uh, article, is that they want to indoctrinate us with one narrative, which we no longer need to accept because Mm. we have other data. Irma's opportunity hoarding as her view of what is happening here. This listener writes, I offer this comment regarding the Republican Party, MAGA, and the Claremont think tank. We who are not associated with these organizations need to stop using the term conservatives when referring to these groups and start using a word like radicals because this is what these organizations are composed of. The word conservatives allows these radicals to hide behind a soft, benign title, which misleads as to their true thinking. We should no longer give them this cover. I think it's an interesting point, listener, and and one that's well taken, though at the same time, I do wonder um, what is considered radical in the conservative, among conservatives today. So I I do want to ask you this, Nick, a lot of people probably also remember your New York Times piece about Tucker Carlson's show when he was on Fox at the time where you drew from analyzing more than 1,100 episodes, his playbook, right, and his consistent messages that were essentially repackaged um, from like white supremacist sites and so on. And so I was wondering if that came to mind for you as you were reporting this particular story, if you see connections? Um, I, I think so. I mean, you know, one way to think about this is that Tucker Carlson, before he was fired at Fox, um, represented the uh, conservative sort of media entertainment 
complex end of this this argument. Um, his job was to get viewers. His job was to um, get you pretty fired up, right? He got almost three million people a night um, to tune into the show, and to do that, you have to keep escalating the stakes. Um, and what's interesting, though, I will say. When his show began on Fox back, I think it was in, in late 2016, if I'm not mistaken, um, they used to feature a lot of segments on what I'll call silly stuff on campus from his perspective, right? Oh, look at those wacky students and professors with their wacky ideas on the left. Um, and over time, that content really faded out of the show. And the reason was it wasn't hot enough. It didn't bring enough viewers. It didn't make you angry and afraid enough. Um he, he and his production team didn't want you to just be be angry or annoyed or laugh at, at the liberals. You had to be angry and afraid. And so you saw him, and I reported this in the story, my colleague and I, Karen Urish, who did a lot of the data um, analysis and, 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 the reviewing, and the reviewing of transcripts and episodes for that story. Um, he more and more relied on this idea of, of, of replacement theory. Uh, that that liberals and business elites on the right were conspiring to replace what they call legacy Americans, native-born Americans, with immigrants from overseas who would then give liberals and liberal ideas power. And and that brought in a lot of ratings. And that really made people angry and afraid. And I think if there's a connection here, it's that we as a country, like a lot of Western democracies, are at a moment where the country is going to become a truly multiracial democracy, where white people are not the dominant group of people forever and ever. And every, I think every Western democracy um, or European or American democracy uh, is going through a version of this convulsion over like who's in and who's out, who's part of us and who isn't. And these arguments over DEI programs and this 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 racist theory replacement theory um, are really arguments about like who gets to be in charge, and often they reflect fears that, well, well, I still have power. Well, will will my place be in a country that, that looks a little different? And so I think there is a connection. Well, Nicholas, really appreciate you joining us today. It's my pleasure to be here, Mina. Thank you. And thanks for pulling the curtain back for us with your reporting. Uh, Nicholas Compasori's piece is called, quote, America is under attack inside the anti-DEI crusade. And it's in the New York Times. Also, I want to thank Mark Nieto and Susie Britton for producing today's segment and the entire forum team, which includes Caroline Smith, Tessa Paoli, and Dan Zoll, Jennifer Eng, Francesca Fenzi, our engineers, Danny Bringer and Brendan Willard, Emiko Oda and Annie Verton, Ethan Tobin Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Have a great weekend. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, 
June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.